Chapter Thirty Four, Part One of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret Espyat. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume Two by Moncure Conway. Chapter Thirty Four, Part One. On one of those blissful mornings which pass the year insensibly from spring to summer, beneath whose glow England expands like a water-lily on her silver seas, I sat in the study of the most eminent art critic in the world. The house at Denmark Hill was embowered with trees, old patriarchs that had watched over the home for a hundred years. Everything betokened wealth, taste, and elegance. The halls ended in airy apartments, and these into conservatories lustrous with floral offerings from every zone. The luminous walls and tinted ceilings combined to give the best light to choicest works of art. As I waited in the library, gazing now at the pictures, and now at the fresh lawns stretching from the low windows, I seemed to be in the ideal home of a man elected by destiny to study the beautiful. He, Ruskin, was affable and kindly in manner, but with something retractile about him, as of one oversensitive and on guard over two quick sympathies. He had the look and voice of an idealist, but not the calmness of the optimist. He was emotional and nervous, and his voice, though rich and sweet, had a tendency to sink into a hopeless tone. His large light eye was soft and genial, his mouth thin and severe. The brow was prominent and suggested power, the chin was receding and weak. I felt at once a discrepancy between the man and his home. The home meant contentment and peace, the man meant restless striving, ideals unfulfilled. He showed me exquisite works of art by masters, but turned away from them one after another, as if a tantalus seeking fruits and finding only blossoms. He spoke eagerly of his American friends, especially of Charles E. Norton and his family. I do not remember his talk, except that he bewailed the mere mercantile conditions of domestic service, and thought the negro in a kindly southern home must be happier by the life contract that made him a member of the family. Ah, if the Southerners had all been Ruskins! My call was brief, and I went off with a sorrowful feeling that this charming man, so affectionate and appreciative of feminine beauty, should be alone in that mansion and its pretty gardens. One who had acted as Ruskin's secretary told me that though Ruskin was under fifty, any allusion to his divorced wife made him suddenly eighty. The affection between Ruskin and Carlyle was beautiful. Carlyle cared little for the arts, but loved any man who had mastered the art and mystery of any vocation. I felt it distressing when Ruskin, by a chivalrous blunder, put Carlyle into a false position requiring a public disclaimer. The facts were, as I had reason to believe, that as Carlyle was returning home from his afternoon walk, one or two rough lads observing his striking appearance called out to him. Whether Ruskin was with Carlyle or met him at his door, I do not recall, 
but he either witnessed the incident, or Carlyle mentioned it, and went on with some lamentation on the degeneracy of the time. However that may be, Ruskin, in hot resentment, proclaimed with bitterness that Carlyle could not walk about Chelsea without being jeered at. In fact, Chelsea was proud of Carlyle, who wrote to the Times gently that Ruskin's statement was the reverse of the fact. Carlyle was troubled at having to do this, which brought on Ruskin reproofs from the press, but said to me, The gods could not save Ruskin. It so happened that this flurry, June 1867, immediately preceded a lecture by Ruskin on contemporary art at the Royal Institution. Ruskin had not written any reply to Carlyle or to the attacks, but before beginning his lecture he said words nearly like these. It may be expected that I would say something concerning the matter which has been publicly discussed relating to a statement of mine, but I will only say here that there are reasons, quite apart from the question of my accuracy, which prevent me from saying anything on the subject. This was said so simply, so quietly, and Ruskin was so unconscious of their pathos that there was a burst of applause. He then proceeded with his lecture. Sir Henry Holland was in the chair, with Earl Stanhope and Sir Roderick Murchison supporting him. In the audience were Sir John Millais, the artist, and his wife, formerly Mrs. Ruskin. Ruskin continued, I believe, to visit Mr. and Mrs. Millais. In enumerating the characteristics of contemporary art, Ruskin named first its compassionateness. Eugène Sue had said, if only the rich knew, and art did know the depths of truth and beauty among the poor. Ancient art honored the palace. That of today loves the cottage, prefers peasants to kings. It was significant that the compassionate art has its great representative in Edward Frere, Edward the brother. Ruskin exhibited a painting by Frere of a cottage interior scantily furnished its only occupant a little girl scraping carrots. You will observe, he said, the sympathetic touches of light and shade in this picture. Wherever there exists sensitiveness to human conditions, there is also a sensitiveness to light and shadow. The second characteristic of the art of the present day is its domesticity. Ancient art waited in the forum, ours lingers in the nursery. And this, he regretted to say, with all its advantages, was closely connected with its third characteristic, shallowness. For people to be entirely comfortable in their little nests implies some narrowness. Here occurred an incident unprecedented in the institution, whose audiences are the creme de la creme. An old gentleman who had taken something stronger than cream, now and then gave vent to his feelings by ejaculating, quite right, that's so, and presently was so continuous that Ruskin stopped. Tyndall went to him and said mildly, Come, friend, leave. I beg your pardon, replied the old gentleman with a good humor that made the audience roar. I've come to hear Ruskin. I'll sit here. Then Tyndall took hold of an arm, burned Jones of a leg, and the man was removed. Tyndall and Jones presently appeared near the lecturer, very warm, and were greeted with cheers. 
Ruskin, in proceeding, read from his notes sentences so oddly appropriate to the occurrence that we were excited to laughter, in which he joined, Sequent on the domesticity of art is its eccentricity. The sense of everything true is lost in a hubbub of voices. He went on to say that the art of the present day was injured by a straining after originality, and the perpetual introduction of dramatic effects. As ancient art began to emphasize the dramatic element instead of form and color, it declined, and at last became vapid. All that was valuable in modern art was a movement against this vapidity. At the head of these reformers he placed Rossetti. He exhibited a painting which he had snatched from Rossetti's studio. It was painted at the time Rossetti was bursting out into his passionate religious art. The painting represented the Passover in the house of Joseph while Jesus was a child. Mary, kneeling, sprinkles blood on the lintels of the door. Jesus in a pink gown looks on, while young John fastens a sandal on his foot, allusion to the words, the latchets of whose shoes I am not worthy to loose. The picture was wonderful for color, and the figure of Jesus beautiful. The incident, he said, might have happened in any Jewish home. Another of this school was Burne Jones, several of whose designs for tapestry were hung behind the lecturer. One of these was Love Leading Alcestis, and another the two wives of Jason, hand in hand, Medea and Hypsipyle. The beauty and refinement of these faces were felt by all. He also spoke of Burne Jones' fine picture of St. Dorothea. The leading figure of the picture is the angel bringing flowers from heaven. The saint's funeral is removed into a corner of the background. Domenichino, said Ruskin, would have put the angel into the corner and the corpse in front. But the English and Italian public had exchanged tastes, and London is now frescoed with the bill-poster's talking head to offset the street frescoes of Verona and Padua. This allusion to the poster of some exhibition at the Polytechnic excited much merriment. Wherever there was frivolity among the people, there was a disposition to gloat over horrible forms. When Robert le Diable was performed at the opera, it was not considered enough that the corpses should rise up in the abbey and become ballet dancers, but a great stroke was made by having a row of corpses holding candles while the others danced. He showed some grotesque figures by Doré, and it was a sad symptom that Burne Jones should have been almost derided while the British public called for Doré to illustrate its Bible. This wretchedness of the public taste rendered it impossible that high English art should exist at present, and as a national art must be produced from a nation's inner life, the real school of art must for a long time be our streets, our chief designs to make the people clean within and without. Baptism is the great sacrament to save the poor just now. When the rich were inwardly baptized, the poor would be outwardly cleansed. In 1880 the London Institution announced for St. Patrick's Day a lecture by Ruskin with a sensational title, A Caution to Snakes. It drew a crowd, but so little was this famous man known personally 
that he stood for some time near the desk chatting with friends without being recognized. When the applause came, he did not appear conscious of it, and went on chatting, and when he began his lecture it was as if he were simply continuing his conversation. He stood with a pictorial background of snakes, indeed framed in an arch of snakes. Alluding to a lecture on snakes, given there by Huxley, he expressed his affection for Darwin and his sincere respect for Huxley. Professor Huxley knows all about the inside of snakes, and I know something about the outside of them, and that is what I mean to talk about. No paper reported this strange lecture, but I made notes, and quote some of them in a detached way. A snake is a lizard that has drawn in its legs, a duck that has lost its wings, a fish that has dropped its fins, a honeysuckle that has taken on a head. You will see at the top a representation of Giotto's design for a sculpture on the Campanile at Florence, the creation of Eve. That artist, in his series of designs for the panels, would not adopt the story of any fall or serpent. Eve rises up to meet her creator beneath a tree, and above her head ivy twines around the tree's trunk, a mere suggestion of danger. Beside this portrait of the spots of an English viper, I have placed a decorative design much used by the ancient Greeks. You will observe that the basis of the decoration is a spotted serpent, but it has a flower at the end instead of a head. The attitudes assumed by serpents are prefigured by the forms of vegetation. Here is a cranberry vine, which creeps along until it shoots up a stem which curves over to its flower, and you will see how like it is to the cobras there erect with curved necks. This eel-pie island of ours does not yet know how an eel swims up a waterfall. Imagine yourself with your feet tied together, and the whole of you tied up in a bag, trying to swim up a waterfall many times your own height. How does the eel manage it? God knows. The motion of a serpent, when the whole of his force is put forth, is a kind of skating on this side and that, himself being the ice. The snake whose bite is most fatal is that which the Portuguese call the cobra of death. It is only three or four inches long, it goes by leaps, but this little pipe-stem creature has only to touch a man with his tooth, and death surely follows. The colors of the fatal serpents are not bright or beautiful. They are dull, muddy, repulsive. Though twenty thousand of the Queen's subjects annually die of snake-bites, there is no full treatise in the English language on the poison of serpents. The upturned face of this rattlesnake has something human about it. This may be partly accidental, and due to the artist, but really the interest which has in every country invested these reptiles has been due to the fact that it has seemed a type of degraded humanity. It has an expression of human cunning and malice. Although much has been said of the serpent's wisdom, it is not nearly so clever as a crab. At one point Ruskin caused amusement by persuading two reluctant officials to stand up on high chairs, about twenty feet apart, in order to display the skin of a boa constrictor. 
Ruskin himself then leaped nimbly up on the table before him, and stood at one side in order that the skin might be seen. In that prominent position he began describing the action of the boa, how, elastic as any small snake, it seized its prey by the action of a whiplash, but when the coil was once round the victim, the lash was as a watch-spring with the rigidity of iron. The action of the boa was described with appropriate gesture, the whole being so dramatic as to elicit applause. This appeared to surprise Ruskin, who, looking down, perceived that he was standing on top of his desk, and then leaped down with a boyish movement and smile. Of course it could not have been a lecture by Ruskin if it had not closed with a moral discourse. He said that if, to illustrate the subject, he had then and there put serpent poison into the most worthless lout in England, they would have been filled with horror at the crime. Yet multitudes of poor louts in the country are poisoned in many ways daily. His own College of the Body of Christ, Corpus Christi, at Oxford, derived much of its revenue from a public-house which poisons a whole village with its adulterated drinks. Another moral was, that wise as the serpent was reputed to be, he was so silly as to swallow his blanket as real food. He was thus a type of educational cram. Thousands of youths supposed to be undergoing education were simply swallowing books, as the boa does his blanket. They swallow what is laid before them without tasting or knowing what they are eating. In this our youth ought to be wiser than serpents. Professor Huxley told me that some scientific men present declared the lecture wild. Perhaps that was its chief charm. There was a wild beauty about all the transfigurations before us of forms towards which our human horror has been bred into an instinct. There were many opinions of Ruskin, with which I could not agree, but I never read or heard a word of his that did not stimulate thought and suggest truth. He was an inspired egoist without egotism, a spirit at once lowly and aspiring, to whom any mistake is forgiven. Wonderful London! Amid the turmoil of fogs of the city, of a mercantile family was born and reared this hyper-aesthetic St. George who encountered the dragon and was devoured. It was at an early period in my London life that I met the Rossettis. Dante Gabriel Rossetti charmed me by his fine freedom of thought and feeling before I could thoroughly appreciate his works. He was a unique personality, free from prejudice, and absolutely dedicated to beauty, whether blessed or unblessed. His poems and paintings are so exquisitely exotic that one has to live up to them individually. They have conveyed to the world the impression of a somber spirit like the great Italian poet whose name he bore, but he was sociable and generous, and had a rich vein of humor. He gave pleasant dinners, at which William, his brother, Swinburne, W. B. Scott, Maddox Brown, Stillman, when in town, were generally present, and to which I was sometimes invited. He eagerly joined in the talk, he was a fine wrangler, and, indeed, I think some of his friends took pains to raise discussions that would bring out his wit and the colors of his sensibility. He loved to poke fun at familiar friends, and wrote nonsense verses about them, some of which I remember. 
One was on the artist and poet W. B. Scott, whose Year of the World Emerson so admired. Scott wore a wig. There is an old party called Scott, who seems to have hair but has not. He seems to have sense, a still grosser pretense, on the part of the party called Scott. Another victim was the academician Val Princep. There is a creator called God, whose creations are sometimes quite odd. I maintain, and I shall, the creation of Val reflects little credit on God. At a dinner given to Stillman, at which Whistler, a confederate, related with satisfaction his fisticuff with a Yankee on shipboard, William Rossetti remarked, I must say, Whistler, that your conduct was scandalous. Stillman and myself were silent. Dante Gabriel promptly wrote, There is a young artist called Whistler, who in every respect is a bristler. A tube of white lead or a punch in the head come equally handy to Whistler. Another rhyme I remember. There's the Irishman Arthur O'Shaughnessy, on the chessboard of poets upon is he though bishop or king would rather the thing to the fancy of arthur o'shaughnessy his quickness in rhyme-making once led his friends to challenge him with certain names one that of a model named olive he instantly produced a verse of which i remember only two lines there is a young female named olive when God made her, he made a doll live. The paintings of Rossetti were a revelation to me. In my earthward pilgrimage, they gave me a movable oasis that went with me through every desert of negation, and preserved the beauty in every lost belief. I fancied in his paintings a pilgrimage of the same kind. His earlier ones had dealt with subjects traditionally holy, but the Madonna drew nearer, and dwelt on earth in the poetic nature of his sister Christina. I can never forget the emotion with which I saw his picture of Mary Virgin. The Virgin is a lovely maiden, a perfect portrait of Christina, seated beside St. Anna, her mother, Mrs. Rossetti, while their father, as St. Joachim, is trimming a vine that climbs above the window. Mary Virgin has before her embroidery, she is copying a lily on which two flowers have expanded, while above these is a bud not yet unfolded. The lily has grown high from a vase whose ornaments are symbolical. An angel is watering the stem, this angel being a portrait of his other sister, Maria. The details of the picture are very fine, but it was the general purport that I found so impressive. In 1856, Rossetti made a drawing of Mary Magdalene at the door of Simon the Pharisee. He never put this picture on canvas, but painted the head of Jesus, now in my possession. In 1867, he gave me a full-sized photograph of the original drawing, and this picture, which he retouched and inscribed, remains a source of happiness. What has become of the original, I know not. After his death, large photographs of his pictures were made by Frederick Collier, and issued to subscribers by his brother William, by whom each is signed, but the Mary Magdalene is not among them. End of chapter 34, part 1